Thanks, Mike, for finally letting me tour the Cage Club Podcast Network studios. No problem, Brian. But hey, could you not tell Joey? He hates it when you mess around with his stuff. Is that every Nick Cage movie ever? Yup. From Fast Times to Massive Talent, this network is pretty much the house that Nicky Coppola built. Hey, what about over there? Where do those stairs go? This is Uncle Francis's wine cellar. A podcast where we break down the films of Francis Ford Coppola. Cut by cut. This is a Cage Club podcast production. <laughs> that's that's my Gary Oldman Dracula, folks. <laughs> I figured there were almost always going to be Italian guys on here, but you know, of course, we're doing something different today. I can't wait. Buonasera, have a seat, have a glass, and welcome to Uncle Francis's wine cellar. I'm Brian Rodriguez, but. Where's Michael? We can't start the podcast without Michael. We have Gary Oldman here instead. <laughs> Good evening. This is Michael. <laughs> it is wonderful <laughs> to be here. <laughs> you know what I was thinking? Um, of course, today we're talking Bram Stoker's Dracula, one of Coppola's more interesting films, certainly a good film for Halloween. But you know what I was thinking? Like, imagine if you cast Pacino as Dracula, like what oh, that no. would have looked like. <laughs> I can't even, like, picture it, look in my head. I'm thinking, like, later, you know, 90s Pacino. My gut instinct is to just do Pacino as Dracula, you know, like, good evening. Like, you yeah, know, yeah exactly. Like, oh, I'm going to suck your blood. Yeah, yeah, I want your blood. But, like, yeah. who knows if he would have done, who knows what he would have done, you know, if he would have, if he would have taken it somewhere, like, with a lisp or something. You never know. You never know, Pacino. You never know. <laughs> Uh, today is going to be a really, really fun one. We recorded this about a week ago um, with your Monsters That Made Us co-host, Dan Cologne. We had so much fun doing it, and it ran so long. Not in a bad way, but we're going to make it a two-part episode. Uh, you, you know, you guys you guys are into your monsters, you get into the nitty-gritty, and I love it. Yeah, we did. We kind of get into the weeds a little bit, so we'll get two episodes of that, which is cool. Dracula and Dracula 2. Dracula bites back. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I can't wait for the cellar dwellers out there to, one, see what wine I end up drinking. Because, oh. spoiler alert, Mike, you do not partake in the blood drinking. Yes, I don't like my wine as much as you. <laughs> well, again, it, it's a painful process recording this show sometimes. So, uh, <laughs> regardless. But I have a blast. But, I, you know, I loved hearing what your favorite Dracula movies were, and just, like, a little bit of behind the scenes, behind the curtain. I feel like that conversation mm -hmm. continued, because, like, Dan's been sending us some great Dracula stuff on the mm -hmm. side. So, yeah, you know, hit up Dan Cologne, hit up, hit up the Mikester, hit up me on social media. I have less Dracula knowledge, but if you want to continue this dialogue, it, it's a very fun and interesting one. Yeah, Brian, I... I foresee our thread becoming very much like our hot dog thread and it just being like crazy dracula shit because like ever since that show we've just kept sending each other like look what i found dracula referenced in and look at this dracula thing and look how weird look a dracula video game from japan and stuff like <laughs> and i i don't want to spoil this episode too much i want people to continue to listen but one of my favorite moments 
is when I dropped some knowledge on Dan that there was a video game adaptation of this film. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that there's one specifically of Bram Stoker's Dracula for Genesis or Nintendo is of it's the funniest thing. I gotta play that game someday. Yeah, and we know there's a Godfather game. I wonder what other Coppola films have video game adaptations. Oh, we gotta play them man. all. <laughs> what? Oh God! I mean, there there should have been an Apocalypse Now game by now. Like oh, I could just yeah. see, you know, like developers growing up loving that movie and that being like such a great setting but they might have trouble getting the rights to that one perhaps how about an outsiders game like kind of like a brawling game that'd be oh cool. yeah or you could do the socias versus the what were they the preps or the something bops, something i forgot the, the we'll, jock, we'll have to find out maybe just the jocks the jocks <laughs> Uh, the socials versus the greasers, of course. The greasers, yeah. I remember this game growing up fondly, the Cotton Club game. Don't you remember that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was called just playing a, an instrument in high school, um, preferably a brass one, I guess. How about, uh, what's it called? Why, I always forget the name of the, the Epcot one. Oh, Captain EO would make an amazing game. Right, there was a Michael right, Jackson Moonwalker game. But you know what would make a good game, actually, is the conversation, right? It's like a snooping game. It would be oh, like... Oh, okay. You know, I was like, how? <laughs> You're right. That is... Yeah. Cool. Like uh, like listening in on people and spying on them and stuff. Could be a fun, fun thing for a game. So if you guys know, like, Coppola video games that we don't know, hit us <laughs> up once again on social media. We do have an Instagram for the show, Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. I'm thinking of creating a Twitter for the show because I realize okay. that's probably a better way to grow the show. I know it takes time, but... Everything good does. So so there might be a Twitter coming along the way as well for Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. Part of the reason to have a Twitter, though, would be to share some of the news that comes out on Coppola. Believe it or not, there is some news. I'm going to save the Megalopolis news for next week because there's a lot, and I kind of want to focus on that. But I feel like we concluded our Godfather trilogy ironically, um, three episodes on the first Godfather film. And we were so excited to finish the movie that like, I feel like we didn't tie some loose ends. So first of all, check out those episodes, please. If you just happen to be a Dracula fan and you want to listen to some other Coppola content, or you're like, you know what? These guys are kind of fun. What else have they done? Yes, we have other podcasts, but support this one. Check out those three Godfather episodes. They're wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, Mike, keep your friends close, but your fellow podcasters closer. And please. Ooh, that's good. That should be our sign-off. I like that. I like that better than uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Because it should be like, no. what? You don't? <laughs> well, I, I want free cannolis, but maybe. I'll consider it. Maybe we'll, I'll think about it. You might be right. I think it is better. Because <laughs> it should be like, leave the guns, take the podcast. Like, you know, something's yeah. off about that as a sign-off. But the one you just said, I like more. So, <laughs> yeah, in consideration then, because again, I think you're right. But, um, so, where was I? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Please, please subscribe mm. wherever you're listening Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. While you're there, leave a positive review or a five star rating. And the most important thing you can do for us tell your friends about Uncle Francis's wine cellar, tell your enemies about Uncle Francis's wine cellar. Tell your family about Uncle Francis's wine cellar. <laughs> because if you like Coppola, this is the place to be. We're talking Coppola things. So, whew, Godfather. A couple other things I wanted to touch on. I like to go over the awards, right? 
Godfather won a bunch of Oscars, as we talked about when we talked The Offer. So I knew it, Ruddy won because of The Offer, right? And he won for Best Picture because he was the lead producer. Yeah. We know Marlon Brando won for Best Actor, right? Everyone knows that because Sasheen Littlefeather, the Native American woman he sent up there, um, she got all the press, and recently she's going to get a lot more press as the Academy officially apologized to her. But of course, Brando wins for playing the godfather and then uh puzo and coppola which that's the most heartwarming one of all right because they won for best writing and yeah so that one that one made me feel good even though it was many years ago and then for part two it's funny i I mean i know we're we're far from part two at this point but i I just i saw it the other day on youtube the acceptance and coppola's not there uh it's just puzo accepting so i can't wait really uh, i can't wait I, i think he mentions why but i can't wait to maybe figure out the you know, longer story behind that, if there is one. How interesting. Wow. Yeah, he gets up there. He's like, where's Francis? Where's Francis? <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. I got to watch it. I haven't seen that. What I wanted to kind of touch on, though, before getting into Dracula, was what was nominated and didn't win for The Godfather. So yeah. both, sorry, both, all three of James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino were nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I'm assuming they split the votes. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You can't do that. They're, two, they're three like amazing, incredible actors and performances that like yeah, it just cancel each other out. Yeah, that's a little tough. Uh, Coppola, of course, was nominated for best director and did not win. Didn't like uh, Fosse win for uh, Cabaret? Cabaret, yeah. So Anna Hill Johnstone was nominated for best costume design. You could see that. Charles Grensbach, Richard Portman, and Christopher Newman were nominated for The Godfather for Best Sound, did not win, but amazing sound in this film. Peter Zinner and William Reynolds, Best Film Editing, also amazing editing. And this is the one that gets mentioned a lot. Nino Rota was nominated for Best Original Dramatic Score, but then was forced to withdraw because apparently the score sounded too similar to another film. Have you heard this? No, I wasn't aware of this. Apparently what happened was... It was the favorite to win because, like, everyone, like, this it couldn't leave their heads. It doesn't even leave my head, right? But mm-hmm. it was similar to a film, an Italian comedy film from 1958. Fortunatella. Oh, that's easy. Like Nutella. Fortunatella was the name of this film. And, and <laughs> someone was like, well, it's too similar. You can't win. This is an adapted score. Ah, bummer. Oh, so they're that's like, not cool. I don't know. I've never heard it. <laughs> Me neither. I'm going to have to check out that movie if I can. I was perplexed, though, how Gordon Willis didn't get a cinematography nod, right? Uh, Yeah, you know, I, it's probably like, you know, even Coppola didn't understand what he was doing at the time, right? Like, I, maybe that was part of it is like, it's so different than what everyone else is doing that it's just like, they don't understand it. Maybe they're like, oh, this movie's amazing, except it's too dark. Like, I don't get, <laughs> you know? I can't like, see it looks anything. Like, like, it looks like a Rembrandt. Know. Like, what's going on here? Like, uh... But I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, recently, uh, House of the Dragon was in the news because uh, that I forgot the director's name, but because he also did that like famous really dark Game of Thrones episode, and a lot of people were like complaining um, that it was oh, too dark. Yeah. And I was thinking like Gordon Willis, if he were alive, would be like, "That's my guy." <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a difference between what Gordon Willis did as far as like you know making making it look more naturalistic with lighting and like you know there's not light there because it wouldn't be there as opposed to like game of thrones shooting day for night and just like you know putting sort of a 
night filter over everything. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> yeah. The news series is even worse. It's, oh man, maybe it's my television. Who knows? <laughs> no, it's definitely made for higher definition televisions. Like it's definitely, and, and they're not apologetic about it, which is really funny. Not but... at all. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the main event before we get into Dracula, right? We're going to be doing this, I feel, the entire run of the series. I'm going to blow your mind, Mike. Uh-huh. Where is the Godfather now? This is the saga. Remember. Oh, cool. Okay, where is it streaming? Where can we watch it? That kind yes. of thing. Can I yes. can I chime in first with a new discovery? Sure. So I was recently at uh, Best Buy's, where I rarely go these days, but um, I noticed while wandering by the... DVD or the Blu-ray shelf or the 4K shelf, uh, nice new steelbook oh, yeah. painted covers for the Godfather releases. Looked very nice. You had um, Don Corleone, old Vito on the first one, De Niro Vito, so Brando Vito on the first one, De Niro Vito on the second one, and then old Michael Pacino on the third one. Looked very cool. Yeah, I don't have a 4K TV. Yeah, I don't think mine is either. <laughs> it's not a worthy investment for me, but it almost is for the way that these steelbooks look. They're beautiful. Yeah. I would like prints, you know, just put some prints of those online somewhere. But I guess that, that you know, that's what the steelbooks are. People collect them for the, for the like, the cover. So good call on that. Yeah, if you are into the 4K thing, if you are into the steelbook thing... It's like one of the only reasons I think to buy a DVD these days, like that you already own, you know, like how can they oh, make yeah, more yeah. money from me? Steelbook. Steelbooks are awesome. I have some like high school steelbook films uh, from my show, High School Slumber Party. That's so cool, right? Like if you have like a theater setup, that's awesome. But if you're like most of us and you have to stream things, let's do it. Let's update people where The Godfather <laughs> is currently streaming. Uh, let me, let me, let me do this. Ready? Ready? Where in the world is the Godfather currently streaming? (laughs) Perfect. So, first recap, it was on Paramount+. Plus. Obviously, the offer was on Paramount+. Plus. So, we assumed it was going to be there forever. Then we got a message that said it was leaving Paramount+. Plus, But it went to Showtime, which is a Paramount company, right? Like, it was part of the bundle. That makes sense. It is now on neither of them. Hmm, what? That's odd. Ladies and gentlemen, where in the world is The Godfather streaming? Peacock! What? Why? Why? On a competitor's service? All three movies, and when I say three movies, it's Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and The Coda are streaming, like, in a collection on Peacock! That is bizarre. That is such, that is so strange. Like, it might have... I don't know. Might as well just be on Hulu next week. You know, like what's the difference? Like, what is going on? Stream it on Disney Plus next month. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Mike, the Godfather's a pimp. They're selling it out everywhere. Or I should say, Paramount is a pimp, right? They're they're pimping they are, the Godfather pimp- to every service. Oh my God, that's fucked up. That Insane. is really funny. I was shocked when I saw it there. And then Peacock's like, yeah, why not? You know? Yeah, you know what? I wonder if they're trying to trying to get some of that sweet, sweet Halloween kills uh, viewership where they're like, people <laughs> are watching the new Halloween and they're like, I don't know about this. Like, And then they're switching to what else is on? Oh, The Godfather. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Insane. So sorry for the long buildup, but wanted to update you guys no, out was, there that on that. Worth it. Totally worth it. <laughs> So without further ado, let's get to the meat of our episode while you're here for Halloween season. And Mike, if we get any, any 
of your the monsters that made us listeners today, I'll be a very very happy man. So <laughs> yeah, and vice versa. If anyone uh, listeners from this you know happen to become fans of that show, I will be uh, extremely grateful. That'd be cool. not not trying to over compliment you guys, but I think after listening to this, if they're not a listener yet, they will be. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> may, maybe we say leave the gun, take the cannoli here, and add that new line for the end. Yeah, or, or sure. You know, why don't why don't uh, why don't you try out the new one and see how it feels? How about that? Try that out here, and then listen to how it sounds at the end of this show, and then we'll decide. What was it again? Keep your friends close and your podcasters, your podcast closer. I, I don't know. It kind of. I might need to. I might need to uh, edit this out and see what it sounds like. Cut and paste. <laughs> Cut and paste. Whatever. Enjoy our opinions on Bram Stoker's Dracula, and have a glass of wine, would you? Welcome to my home. Enter freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula? I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Harkon, to my house. Normally I would have a drink with me too, but uh, after yesterday. (laughs) Strictly water right now. Do you not drink wine? I, yep. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to go for it. Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> oh, this is all about the low-hanging fruit. This is Uncle Francis's wine cellar. We pick the low-hanging fruit off the vine, Dan. Off the vine. Yeah, Dan, if, you know, if, if you know any Tom Waits off the top of your head, just feel free <laughs> to let it rip. <laughs> well, before we introduce our guest, let me introduce said wine. Today, ah. again, solo drinking, Mike. But <laughs> I am drinking Francis Coppola Diamond Collection 2018 once again, but this is a Syrah Shiraz mix. Oh, okay. Blend. Syrah Shiraz. <laughs> so you can see the green label here if you're uh, watching on video and we actually get to the video. So I will open that up. And as I open that up, let's introduce our first ever guest on Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. Dan, um, um, Dan. Uh, ho- hold on, Dan. Hold on, Brian. He's not our first guest. I'm not counting Kyle. Kyle's not a guest. Ky- okay, okay, okay. Then let's take take it over again. I'm sorry to interrupt. So take two. <laughs> take no, two. Honestly, honestly, <laughs> I for- I forgot Kyle was on. <laughs> our second ever guest. I'm sorry, Kyle. You don't listen to these podcasts anyway. But. <laughs> Our first guest who has an active show on, multiple active shows, there you go, Dan Cologne, or, or Dan Helsing, as you named yourself today. Ooh, Dan. Yeah. Good evening. <laughs> ah. Dan, Mike, do you know each other? Is this an introduction? Or? Dan, nice to meet you. I think, I think yeah, I think I've heard of Mike. I've heard his name once or twice, having been on the network uh, for a little while. <laughs> yes, Dan and I are uh, well acquainted. <laughs> of course, you know, part of the reason I am butchering this opening of this bottle. Um, and and part this of the episode. Reason... <laughs> I'm not butchering the episode, it just I'm started. Joking, I'm joking. <laughs> you said the opening of the bottle, I meant the opening of the episode. Fine, fine. But <laughs> Dan, Mike, you of course host The Monsters That Made Us Together. So today we, you know, have a monster film, and it's a Coppola film. It, it's just so appropriate. But before we even get into monsters, Dan Cologne, Coppola, are you familiar with? Are you a fan? What's your history with Francis Ford? 
So um, my experience with Coppola is not as uh, as deep as I would like it to be. Uh, I know Godfather, obviously, Godfather Part Two, Apocalypse Now, and Dracula, and I think that's kind of where my experience with Coppola ends. I tried watching Youth Without Youth once, and I got about halfway through it and gave up. And um, I think I just wasn't prepared for it. But again, this was this was in my mid twenties. You know, it's it's yeah. been a good ten years or so. So I, I, it might be a film that I should revisit now and see if I feel the same way. Is that the Tim Tim Roth finds like a mermaid? I think. Yes, something like that. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. You sent me a copy of that, Mike. Oh yeah, I, I had a feeling it was back when we were in college or something, or we were exchanging things over the mail. Yeah, it was like just post college, and uh, yeah, I think I just wasn't prepared for Coppola in that way. You know, like compared to the other films that I had seen, the ones I had just referenced, it's nothing like that. You know, I feel like Coppola, in his mind, is much different from how he translates onto the screen sometimes. You know, having watched uh, the offer, if that's truly Coppola, you know that's sort of the, the way. What's his, uh, that actor's name who played him? You know, like I get, I get the sense from at least watching that performance that like that uh, Coppola had these sort of um, auteur uh, fantasies. You know, and I think in a lot of ways he he is an auteur, but uh, I just wasn't. You know, again, not prepared for Youth Without Youth at the time I saw it. So I really need to delve into more of his work oh. outside of like the real mainstream. Hollywood stuff. Maybe we have you back for that too. That would be cool. Oh yeah, <laughs> good idea. Good idea. Dan Fogler, who Fogler, yes, Dan Fogler, he, who's amazing. Should have been in the Lord of the Rings, if you ask me. Like this new series, he would have been awesome in uh, Rings of Power. Ooh yeah, but I like that. I like that. As like a Hobbit or something. <laughs> <laughs> so you obviously know Godfather, Godfather Two, and Apocalypse Now. What's Coppola's masterpiece of those three? Maybe it's another one. Maybe it's Jack. But of those three, <laughs> what do you think Coppola's masterpiece is? Oh, man. Um, it's a tough one. It is a tough one. I would say that I probably watch The Godfather, the first Godfather, more than I watch the others. I would say Apocalypse Now, but I find myself watching the documentary Hearts of Darkness more yeah. often than watching Apocalypse Now. I actually kind of like Hearts of Darkness uh or is it Heart of Darkness? I can't remember. I actually think I like that more than I like Apocalypse Now. I think wow. it's a fascinating document of a filmmaker like completely losing control and losing his mind. You know, yeah. just, as a film student, I really gravitated toward that. Uh, so, yeah, I would say God, the first Godfather. That and uh, that Lost in La Mancha movie, Terry Gilliam trying mm. to make Don Quixote. Like that would be a great double feature. Those two just watching. Oh yeah, yeah. watching men lose their mind trying to make a movie. <laughs> Yeah, no, both great docs. Or like, um, it could also make a good double feature with like Fitzcarraldo. Yeah, Is it yeah. Fitzcarraldo? Yeah, that and the ma- there's the making of that, yeah. Or, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. There's a documentary about the making of Fitzcarraldo. I can't remember the name of that, but like equally as fascinating, right? A good triple feature there. I like that. It's not High School Slumber Party, but we're, we're still cool to recommend uh, rental features of that <laughs> nature. That's awesome. But of course, we brought you on today well because we like you but also 
you are Mike's horror consultant, so I guess you're mine now, too. <laughs> well, which is, which is nice. <laughs> Dan, 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 I used to bring Dan on my show, Third Types of Charm, as my horror <laughs> consultant, and now we do this horror podcast together. So I, I wouldn't say he's my, my consultant. He's We're officially like co hosts. Are you each other's? So yeah. We're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, my horror co host. <laughs> yeah, we very much work in tandem. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to hold that weight on my shoulders by myself, <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> it's not one of those shows, Mike, where you go in like, "Oh, I wasn't familiar with this at all," and Dan just educates. Uh, I mean, it's half that. Like these are some of them are movies I haven't seen before, so I do get educated. You know, like uh, I, I would say so, but it's not like I'm doing this half-assed. <laughs> no, I was. I was kidding about that part, but Dan, you do do a lot of research for those episodes those are extensive and i i you know i've complimented you guys both and I'll, you know i'll do it on air monsters that made us is an amazing show i've had people who i know who don't know you guys who don't know the network who've told me how much they love that show so you know congratulations honestly like oh, that's so you. awesome so happy to get a little bit of the shine here for uncle francis so you know, <laughs> thanks, thanks for, for stopping by there and of course um you cover the original universal monsters yep dracula being one of them obviously this isn't a you know a universal monster film but i have to ask like just for people who haven't listened to the monsters that made us how many Dracula films have you done so far? Oh, I'd have to look that up, actually. I don't know off the top of my head. I, I think it's five. So there's Dracula, Dracula's Daughter, Son of Dracula, Son of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, and then House of Dracula so far, right? I'm... So five. That sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right to me. So what you thought of the character, kind of maybe from just watching them previously, or just, you know, Dracula in the cultural zeitgeist, to what you feel about the character and dracula films now has that perception changed at all like where does he rank even in the monsters for you guys okay so let me take the first part of that uh first i think what i like most about dracula as he's evolved over time and i think this has a lot to do with the period in which those original films were made you know in the, in the 1930s and, and 40s there was a lot of uh censorship there's a lot of stuff you couldn't get away with in movies uh, now, the first Dracula came out in 1931. It was pre-code, but still it came out of a major uh, Hollywood studio. So they were mostly playing by the rules. James Whale tended to push the envelope a little bit more uh, wherever he could. But Dracula is pretty tame by uh, vampire movie standards. Um, and then, of course, as you get further into the 30s and 40s, like Universal only sort of neutered the character over time. He becomes less... less uh, of a serious threat. You know, I think in the, in the last one we talked about um, in our house of Dracula episode, you know, like he just kind of shows up to be, to be Dracula. And then three quarters of the way through the movie in the movie that's called house of Dracula, he's gone. Wow. And, and he goes out in a really shitty way. Like I think four out of the five movies, he just doesn't think to hide his coffin and keep it a secret. So like the sun's coming up, he runs into his coffin. Everyone knows where it is and they just drag it into the sun or whatever. I think that what I like about Dracula over time, since the Universal Monsters, you get into the 1950s with uh, Hammer Productions. You know, they were they re revamped, uh, so to speak, Dracula and the other <laughs> gothic characters. And then you get the 90s with uh, with this Dracula. Oh, don't let me, don't let me forget Frank Langella as Dracula in the 70s. 
the thing that's cool is that Dracula has become much more of a of a physical monster, much more predatory, which is really cool. And then the sexual energy and the sexual mm-hmm. themes that come through in a Dracula story have become like have gone off the off the charts ever since. You know, once the, once the Hayes Code was was dropped, it it's like the studios like okay, now we can get away with the things we want to get away with. We can tell these stories the way they were intended. Um, and I think Coppola just dials up all of that stuff to like 11 here uh, stuff that I, w- I would argue is not necessarily in the original source materials to call this Bram Stoker's Dracula might be a bit of a stretch, but I get what he's doing. I know he liked to, to credit the author when possible in the, in the title as he did with the Godfather, but yeah. So I, I really love that. Like, especially specifically here, we see Dracula become like a physical hairy beast. He becomes absolutely physically grotesque and terrifying and then again just the the heavy romantic uh sexual themes i think are are really cool too then i'll put this question out to both you guys because you're much more well-versed than i am in this subject matter what is your favorite dracula film and mike you've told me yours before it's dracula dead and loving it (laughs) that's not a bad one but it's not my favorite (laughs) (laughs) That is a tough one. I definitely do have a favorite Dracula film, I think, at this point, And it might be kind of surprising because Dracula's not in it. It's Dracula's Daughter. Uh, when we did Dracula's oh. Daughter on the show, let me just bring it up real quick. I was, uh, I'd never seen it before, and I was extremely shocked at how competent it was as a movie i guess like that early on in like the sequels and all that kind of thing that like to not have dracula in it and to start doing his offspring like now dracula is the son of dracula i don't love him as much but his daughter and that movie is is pretty remarkable it's gorgeous gloria holden as uh dracula's daughter is amazing in it uh there's a lot of kind of carrying on or expanding upon the themes of what made Dracula, I think, so iconic in the first place with the first movie. Dan mentioned a bit about it, um, you know, his sort of uh, sexual symbolism that, you know, I always sort of thought was only in relation to Dracula himself or male vampires. And then we have in Dracula's daughter, she is acting very much like you would think um, a male vampire would act. There are tones of sort of... um, of, of queer themes even way back then that as much as they could get away with and i think the movie is extremely tasteful for uh what they're trying to go for and so you know even way back then i, I think because i've seen it recently it's halloween season now and i'm gearing up to watch a lot more vampire stuff but like that really has still stuck out in my mind recently as like a really good dracula movie and one that i don't think like many people were uh, as aware of as i thought so interesting that's a great cool pick how about you dan that's yeah that's a really good pick i think if i were to choose a favorite dracula movie i might have to go with uh the 1958 hammer film horror of dracula uh as an adaptation of the original source material it also kind of is kind of a remake of the 1931 universal film it kind of threads that that needle of being faithful to both in a way that i find really satisfying uh, Christopher Lee is hands down like an incredible, incredible Dracula. And uh, Peter Cushing is probably my favorite Van Helsing. 
Wow. He's he's like the Van Helsing that I feel could stand toe-to-toe with that Dracula. He's a badass, and to think of Peter Cushing as a badass is it blows my mind. But <laughs> when I watched that movie for the first time, I couldn't believe how much I, I loved it. Uh, and I would definitely recommend any of those um, Hammer films because I think they're all fantastic. That's awesome. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, Horror of Dracula is pretty excellent. This is a really great one, too, you know, having just rewatched it. I think I watched this last year as well for Halloween. And I, I just, I mean, I love the hell out of this movie as a Dracula film. And I mean, just as like what you can do with film in general. And um, Coppola's just sort of love letter to horror and gothic films and and everything like that uh it's just super impressive and just to touch quickly on a little bit of what dan was answering for you earlier brian about sort of like you know the then and now of dracula movies and stuff i feel like he was pretty close to being fully formed when he appears in this novel and when he appears as uh, bella lugosi portrays him on stage and in the films like it's not very far from where we are today uh and that was very surprising going back and watching those movies a lot of that lore is there and what we have now is more sort of emphasis on the effects i would say the makeup effects and that and that as more of a metaphor is like the, the gruesome stuff and getting into all that kind of thing and I think what this movie does that I was pretty impressed about again and every time I watch it is it kind of tries to draw in that Vlad the Impaler stuff for the first time. Like I think this is the first time that I started hearing about that and him being an actual dude and them attributing him as the real life Dracula and everything. So sort of messing with history and the novel and kind of fusing it together in his Coppola way is all very entertaining tonight uh, in what I watched. Speaking of the novel, have either of you actually read Bram Stoker's Dracula? So I'm actually participating in uh, this like email subscription thing called Dracula Daily, and somebody has chronologically organized all of the journal and entries, all of the letters, like all the correspondence, you know, again, in chronological order. So on the day that whatever it is, you know, if it's September 17th, okay, you're going to get an email that day and it's going to be that portion of the book. Oh, wow, that's, that's really cool. cool. So you, you get it as these letters and things were written. So obviously the book is not written in chronological order, but the emails all come out in chronological order. So it's really cool to read Dracula kind of in real time. Wow, that's really fun. That's awesome. I love yeah, that. that sounds cool. Yeah, I, I still have not read it. I, I just showing you guys before the show, I found a copy in my garage that I had been looking for for a while, so I, I hope to get to reading this soon. It doesn't seem that long, uh, and if you want, I could just flip to a random page and start reading tonight. Let me know later on. I have it at arm's reach. So, Did you uh, guys read that uh, Coppola actually made the cast do that? He got all the cast together, and it took like two or three days, and they just read the book together just to oh. understand the source material. That's crazy. <laughs> I believe that. That's a very Coppola thing to do, I feel, for actors to kind of bond or, you know, he comes from the playhouse. It kind of feels like a theater exercise as well or something. And it's like a read-through. Uh, if you're adapting to source as close as possible, it's like, yeah, it's just like the pre-script. So. Plus, you know you have power in Hollywood. Like, this is an A-list cast, and it's like, hey, we're just getting together. Come to my house. And we're just reading this book. Like, I think that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. So, Dan, you alluded to this, the title of the film, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Two stories on this. The version that a lot of people tell is that they didn't want to get into 
copyright hell by just calling it Dracula, so they called it Bram Stoker's Dracula. But you're right, Coppola says, no, I prefer to put the uh, author in my films at the, at the beginning of it, like, again, Mario Puzo's The Godfather. So, you know, you could believe either side. He, he didn't do S.E. Hinton's uh, The Outsiders, so he's not consistent with that. That's but, true. Or the other S.E. Hinton book that he did, right? Didn't he do two? Rumblefish. Rumblefish. <laughs> if you want to have me on again in the future, The Outsiders is my favorite book of all time. So nice. uh, we can definitely talk about that. Plenty of versions of that, too. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this was a trend, though, because around this time, or maybe because of this movie, or around the same time, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was out, you know? Well, Mike, uh, it's, it's because of this movie, because yeah. this movie was actually a hit. We'll get into it. Coppola is actually the producer on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, he apparently recommended Robert De Niro, but he did not direct it. That was Kenneth Branagh. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. But you're right. They, they are supposed to be companion pieces. Fascinating. This is the first time I ever saw this movie, by the way, and I have ah. not seen the uh, the uh, Kenneth Branagh uh, Frankenstein movie either. So, But... Listeners of the Cage Club Podcast Network may have heard episodes about this before. I didn't realize this is at least a third times a charm, kind of. Not a third times a charm, but it's the third time it's been on the network because, Mike, you already covered this film on Keanu Club, right? Yeah. No, yeah, we definitely did. That was a while ago, too. Keanu Club is kind of like an old show now as far as the network goes. But, yeah, this... uh... This was high. This was like right as Keanu was riding high, getting hot, becoming like a superstar, and here we are again. And I think they covered it on Winona Forever, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Winona Forever covered this as well. So this is the third time on the network for this movie, which kind of surprised me because we don't get a lot of th- mm-hmm. three-peats here. But it's it's been a while for both those, so I'm glad to uh, talk about it again. Um, <laughs> When I just put Bram Stoker's Dracula in the old Wikipedia, I, I got this really awesome list of everything ever called Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I want to okay. share it. Obviously, the novel. There's Bram Stoker's Dracula, the 1974 film, a telefilm. Has, have either of you heard of that one? No, is that no. for television? Yeah, it was on television. I had never heard or seen anything related to this one. Jack Palance plays Dracula. Get That's interesting. out! I could see that. <laughs> That's awesome. I gotta check that one out. <laughs> I wanna suck your blood and find Curly's gold. Like <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's the first one known as Bram Stoker's Dracula as a film. Of course this nineteen ninety two one. The soundtrack also has its own Wikipedia page. And Mike, mm-hmm. damn, yeah. did you yeah. know there was a video game yes. adaptation for this movie? There's like a couple, no. right? Like like <laughs> Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, Sega CD. Yeah, it was made for like three or four platforms. It's around uh-huh. the same game. But still, I'm like, I got to buy it. It's only like 10 bucks used. And I, I need to play this. We need to play this. I got to play it. I got a Super <laughs> Nintendo. I would love to get a copy of this. Oh, my gosh. Someone send us a copy. Who was that made for? <laughs> so, Dan. I don't know. Let, let me explain. Let me explain a little bit of what it was like to be like 12 in the 90s. They made a game out of fucking everything. There was a Lawnmower Man, the movie, the game. There was like game American Gladiator games. They fucking made video game versions of Monopoly for some reason. Like, Dan, they would—they didn't care. It was like, it's a brand. It's marketable. There needs to be a tie-in of everything. I'm shocked. There were, sure. there were action figures, but I'm shocked there wasn't a serial. You know, I, I think I, I had the Monopoly game for my Sega Genesis. I get why, like, American Gladiators could 
translate well to a video game. But like, what about <laughs> Bram Stoker's Dracula? Just screams video game. I cannot fathom what that game is at all. You have the uh, wolf's point of view. It's kind of like a first-person shooter. Uh, I'm just I'm just speculating on how you could turn the movie into a game. Uh, the part where the wolf runs around. I and wonder like... how many boobs are in that game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the cutscenes. Yeah, the... how many decapitated heads. The sexual energy of that NES game must have been amazing. But, yeah, so, okay, so NES and Sega. There was also a separate game that was Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Game Boy game, which apparently is different. What? came out the same year, but apparently it's, like, ported differently. I'm not sure. There's Bram Stoker's Dracula, the pinball machine that came out that year. Okay, I get that. <laughs> sure. I get that. I get yeah. that. And Bram Stoker's Dracula, the four-issue Tops comic. That's actually good. Uh, that's a Mike Mignola comic, the guy who yeah. created Hellboy. That's a very cool adaptation. I have a copy of that. I'm just thinking in in the early 90s, we weren't really seeing many adults play video games, right? Like we, no. we we're, we're the generation of adults who now like gets the new PlayStation, right? Like in the early 90s, what adults were doing that? So again, I'm asking, were you 12 playing Bram Stoker's Dracula? Well, you <laughs> just... know what? It, I think it was more like, oh, maybe it's like a Castlevania style game, you know? Like there's sure. horror kinds of themed games and things. So it's just, it's weird that it's based on the movie, but I could see there being like Dracula, the video game where you're a vampire hunter or playing Dracula or something. It's just the bizarre thing is how it's it's Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's yeah. Dracula for Super Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's the tie-in for me, for sure. Like, yeah. I've played Castlevania. I, it makes perfect sense. But to, to tie in this movie with a video game in the early 90s, I don't get it. But, I mean, it's not, again, like you've said, it's not the only thing that's where that's been done. You know, I've seen uh, kid-size RoboCop sweatsuits yeah. from the 80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and like, like what kid was watching RoboCop and just wanted the sweatsuit? Well, again, there was a RoboCop cartoon. There was a Rambo cartoon. Like, there's a whole yeah. list of R-rated yeah. films that became... I'm surprised it wasn't a Predator cartoon, but I think they were... They pulled the plug on the Aliens cartoon at one point or another. Yeah, that was running. That was running for a little bit. So I looked up the pinball machine because I wanted to see what it looked like. There was two versions. There was one that was, you know, it was awesome looking pinball machine. And there was a second version that looked like a casket that oh. you opened up. Mm. And that was yeah. the pinball machine, which is, trust me, look it up. It looks really cool. Okay. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. You know, that's all good and well and fun. But let's get into the production of this actual film. It has such an interesting story that uh, don't mind if I share it a bit. So the movie origins are not actually with Coppola but with Winona Ryder um, she got her hands on this a script for a TV adaptation that they were preparing written by uh, James V. Hart who would later write uh, Hook and uh, the Mary Shelley Frankenstein movie as okay. well and Michael Apted was supposed to direct it and if you're not familiar with him he would end up being like a huge HBO guy. He created that series Rome, which was like so yeah. ahead of its time, like 13. pretty much a precursor, <laughs> yeah. precursor to Game of Thrones and like everything we get now. So she went into this meeting with Coppola, Mike, because she had left The Godfather abruptly, and she felt super bad about this. Godfather Three, Godfather Three. Remember, Godfather she's supposed 3. to play. She's supposed to play the character that, unfortunately, Sofia Coppola played. Mary. Will, will somebody please hail Mary? <laughs> a week before filming, she drops out and Coppola f essentially forces his daughter to take that role 
We talk about this a lot on your show, Mike. Third time's a charm. But Winona actually felt bad about that. She was just really burnt out. So she kind of set up this meeting with Coppola to clear the air. Coppola says he wasn't angry. He totally understood. Um, So they were kind of just talking about maybe projects they might do in the future. Something they had talked about through their agents was an adaptation of Kerouac's On the Road Again. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what they really thought the meeting was going to be about. But Winona had this script, and she passed it along to Coppola. So, hey, I actually really like this. It's a TV adaptation, adaptation, but take a look. She loved the romance angles of it and how it was like different than other Dracula tales because of that, because it featured you know, women in that kind of role. And she thought, you know, obviously there was a role in it for her. And instantly Coppola was like, we can make this. Let's do this. So he got a deal uh, to make it himself. And we're off to the races, which I think is such a fascinating origin story for this film. You know, it's funny. I didn't really dawn on me until now. And maybe, you know, because of something like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and stuff, but there is sort of like a Jane Austen slant to Dracula, right? Like, there is that very, like, romance in the time of... Yeah, it's a romantic novel, like, of the era, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah, right. I mean, I was always so focused on the the horror kind of aspect of it that I always obviously I didn't ignore the the romance and the drama and stuff but it never felt front and center whereas I think now it's vital it's so important to to the main story and everything that like yeah I really dig when it's a period piece like this because you get the full flavor of that what they're trying to get across with that and I think like you know just to backtrack a little like the term gothic today means something different than obviously what it did before right like goth kids aren't necessarily like you know what everything gothic means because isn't like jane eyre like bronte like that's like a gothic novel as well and it's you know not right you know kids dressing in black and stuff you know (laughs) so there's definitely uh tie-in elements there and i love it and, and we get to see it here the main thing that attracted coppola to the script was the sensual nature of it he wanted the film to resemble in his words an erotic dream that was his goal for this (laughs) a wet dream well he succeeded (laughs) (laughs) now at the time coppola's reputation wasn't the best right when people said coppola even now kind of but especially then People said, it's going to go over budget. It's going to run long. Be prepared for that. And he really wanted to change his reputation with this movie. His goal was to be on budget and on time. The first part of Coppola's strategy was to film on sound stages, which is not very Coppola, Mike, as we've learned, right? He loves to film on location. Think about guys in the offer, how much he needs to film in Sicily, right? Like, that's so important to him. But he decided to do most of this on sound stages so that no days would get delayed because of weather, so that he could control every element. Originally, he had concepted the film as, like, very minimalist, um, in terms of the backgrounds, and he wanted to spend almost the entire like production budget on costuming. The studio nixed this. We'll get into the costuming, but they did spend a lot on that. And his inspirations for this film, one of them being, and I actually you know bought this picture at IKEA, but Klimt, like this image and his uh, paintings were like the biggest visual inspiration for Coppola on this mm. movie. So. I'm pointing at it behind me because I just happened to have one. I could see that. I could see that with Dracula. And he made sure to storyboard everything this Mm -hmm. time. Coppola has a reputation, if you read about him, for 
not preparing enough before shooting day, right? I'm not saying it's fair or not. We'll find out on this podcast, Mike. Even Robert Evans said that. Like, he doesn't do enough before the first day of filming to get everything done in time and on budget. This time he did. He actually created an animated movie based on the storyboards, which, I don't know, maybe we need to add this to our... (laughs) If we can get a copy of it uh, for this podcast. Sounds like a version to me. Which included music, choppy animation, part of the Jean Coteau Beauty and the Beast film from 1946 and Klimt paintings to put together for everyone to like, this is what we're doing along with uh, the table reads along with reading the book. Like he wanted when you're on set, we're getting this done today. Well, it it sounds now like what you hear about uh, in terms of like an animatic, like he came in with basically the movie made before he made the movie. And he's like, look, here's storyboards, here's animation, here's all the script, things and it's all in order and it's all exactly and we want to just capture this as close as possible you know and like you know you hear stories of Zack Schneider shooting Watchmen and he's got the graphic novel or the comic books like and he's just looking at the comic and he's looking at the camera and he's like making sure it's lined up properly you know <laughs> it seems like something of that nature like a proto version of working in that way which is extremely smart and efficient I mean this movie is a visual feast like thank goodness that he had so much control and forethought to like shoot it in a studio and use all the visual effects and all the practical effects and all the different camera tricks and I mean every trick in the book before CGI is probably in this movie and that was big to him on this production right like he did not want to use CGI and the studios were like you have to use it they sent him an an entire effects team to try to convince him to use you know cutting edge stuff to get what he wanted to make those storyboards a reality he fired the entire team and hired his son roman coppola to do the effects just so he could have 100 percent control of it which is awesome again today yeah. in, a, in a world that we're going back to a lot of practical effects like he's a little ahead of his time being like no fuck that <laughs> we're, we're, we're just gonna go practical and this is a year a year before jurassic park came out and mm-hmm. like once Jurassic Park came out, every movie was made with CGI. You know, like they were studios were trying to use digital effects to do as much as possible. I love in this case that he really fought for uh, practical effects. And yeah. I don't know if if uh, if given carte blanche to do whatever, if he would have wanted to shoot this on location. But I feel like shooting it on a soundstage it gives it this um, sort of theatrical quality to it. Uh, It almost seems otherworldly. Like it doesn't look like these places don't look real. And I think that works in the movie's favor. I mean, we're telling a, a, you know, what what did you, how did you describe it, uh, Brian? Like a sexual dream? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted like, yeah, essentially a sexual dream. Yeah. (laughs) An erotic nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. An erotic dream. That's what he said. An erotic dream. An erotic dream. Like it definitely helps convey that by by shooting everything on sets and uh, and using these practical effects, everything feels like it's it's right there, which is which is really cool. Um, Terry Gilliam does it too a lot, oh, and yeah. I always love his movies for feel like because they always feel like okay, this is this is some invented space and anything yeah. can happen. This is always sort of the realm that I wish Tim Burton had gone in instead of his more minimalist kind of like you know like I feel like that's sort of something Coppola was sort of referring to where he's like, let's make it like a play almost or some kind of like Dada thing where it's like they're in a void, but they're wearing 
perfect period piece costuming or something like mm. but i kind of see that as like tim burton's style right where he has like you know most of it looks real but then like it's all kind of cardboard and off sort of off angles and all that kind of stuff i am always impressed every time i watch this at coppola's attention to detail and being able to be that kind of like surreal and like travel the like the line of reality and surreal and unnatural and use the medium to its fullest right and i think cgi just would have tarnished his vision in a way you know t2 was around and i'm sure they wanted some kind of some kind of super smooth glossy bat transformation or like when he turns into the mist like thank goodness he just used like a fog machine and he probably just shines like a green light on it, you know? I love the techniques and love the effects of the way this looks. Yeah, and bringing up Jurassic Park, Dan, is great because like this this almost feels like one of those films that was like a last stand before right. we crossed into that barrier where things became uncanny valley after a while um, that we've, you know, pulled back from. And again, I'm not one of those people who's like, FCGI, I, I don't need it anywhere. Like, there's a time and a place, but... Once Hollywood saw what Jurassic Park can do, they were pretty much shoving it down every director's throat if they could. This is cool to see that he's like still holding out for his vision like this. Like hair and makeup is done by someone named uh, Michelle Burke. I want to like shout her out because the hair and makeup in this is amazing considering again they're not using CGI and the costumes are designed by uh, someone named Elko Ishioka and Coppola very much wanted this person to design the costumes because he wanted a Japanese uh, kabuki-ish feel to it as well. That sort of theater. And when I read that, I'm like, that makes so much sense. Because when you look at the outfits, there's a Japanese gothic aspect to them as well, which I think is so cool and like different. Like that it doesn't like pull on that like European gothic tradition as well. Like it's more of like a worldly costume design. Yeah, I love that too. And like, you know, over the years that I've watched this, I've also watched many more Japanese horror films. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it nails a lot of that style perfectly. You know, a lot of that sort of kabuki theater brought to life. And a lot of those horror movies I like, somewhat like uh, G Goku, I think, was one of them. And it's like they, they look kind of like this in a lot of ways, you know? They're shot inside, they have like big sets, they have painted backgrounds and deep backgrounds and uh, a lot of matte paintings and you know it's obvious that it's a movie you know they're not trying to fool anyone like that they're just trying to portray a fairy tale or like a scary tale or something like that and so I think you know not just in the look of Dracula per se but also in a lot of use of you know again like um, like the cinematography I also get a lot of kind of like Dario Argento era giallo with all the different color going on in this movie at times as well so coppola definitely drawing from the history of sort of horror throughout the world i think and and play you know plays and and theater to kind of come together to make this movie yeah mike you're so right about that like this movie has such a very cool quality that on my first watch i was pleasantly surprised with this one because 90s Coppola doesn't have the best reputation, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, when I, once I saw this, I'm like, all right, I'm all in. Yeah, so just regarding his rep, I, man, The Godfather 3, that's really, that he, you know, I, I, and I find it hilarious because I feel like it's one of his most quoted 
Godfather movies, and yet it's the one everyone claims to hate the most. And it just seems like that is still his reputation, you know? And part of our quest here, Brian, is to, I don't know, elevate that movie to its proper place, I guess, over the years. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Uh, Another reason why we're here is because he makes a lot of cuts of his films. Um, This is an interesting one because there's no official other cuts but if you go on IMDb, there's there's just like some other stuff here or there, like uh, the theatrical version's like slightly different than the VHS version. Is that because of like aspect ratio and full frame? No, they're like little things, like and... like like Keanu's nipple is in in one of them bleeding and, and not bleeding in another one. Oh, just okay, like... yeah, I saw the bleeding nipple. Yeah, me too. I wouldn't devote another episode to a lot of them, except there's this one that. I would love to see if someone out there recorded a version of it. Because apparently there was a version that aired on Fox in 1995, broadcast television, that cut out so much. Just I implore you guys to go on IMDb and look at the alternate versions. That even Francis Ford Coppola was like, never do this to one of my movies again. (laughs) It was a clean cut of this film that even eliminated certain characters like... um, the, the Renfield character was eliminated from the movie completely. So what what did this movie look like without the sexual energy, the violence, and the blood? You know, like, <laughs> I do want to watch that if we can get our hands on it. Did they happen to change uh, the director credit to Alan Smithy by any chance? Yeah, <laughs> right? At that point, you kind of better. <laughs> well, you know, Brian, I didn't have, uh, I didn't exactly have the time this round, you know, maybe by the next time we cover this movie on the show, I'll get around to it. But there, are, there is like a half hour of deleted scenes on my Blu-ray that I didn't get around to. I've probably watched them before, but I look forward to, you know, reminding myself of what those scenes and sequences are like. Yeah, maybe we'll have a mini episode on the deleted scenes or something. There's never been an extended cut where they've been placed in the film. But you know yeah. what? At the rate that like they release things... Don't be shocked if it happens during the life of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. See, so maybe by the uh, time the 5K disc comes out. <laughs> by the way, there's a free version on YouTube, which I'm sure they're going to pull any moment now. The quality's not that good. I just rented it. I don't own this one. Um, you guys own this one? Yes. Yeah. So I was I was saying before the show in the, in the chat, like, I think my Blu-ray is one of the very first Blu-rays I've ever got. And I think I got it at the promotion for my PS3. Oh. Yeah, like, it's that old. Uh, I think I sent away for it and I got, like, this, Spider-Man 3, and um, maybe, like, The Bank Job. Or something like that. Oh, and a Kevin Bacon movie. What was the uh, Stir of Echoes? I think I also got Stir of Echoes at the time. <laughs> I think I once got a free Blu-ray with a PlayStation or like uh, one of those send away ones. And it was that like Cowboys versus Aliens movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what I got on that. <laughs> and Dan, I think you were, you were saying before we got on air that you have a D, an early DVD version, right? Yeah, I have a DVD. Uh, it, it, <laughs> um, it plays fine like a DVD, but for the first time ever, I, I noticed the... Um, the menu screen and it looks pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it looked like a CD-ROM. <laughs> yeah, one of the, one of the one of my favorite details was that if you were to put on subtitles, they only offer Spanish and Korean subtitles. Ooh, there are no English Korean. subtitles. Wow. The the uh, the Blu-ray has some extra features as well as the 30 minutes of deleted scenes, audio commentary and introduction by Francis. So you could watch the movie with him. Uh, the blood is the life making of Dracula. The costumes are the sets, the design of I- 
Aiko Ishioka. And in camera, the naive visual effects of Dracula and Method and Madness, visualizing Dracula. So there's a couple of special features on this disc, too, you should check out. I should upgrade my disc, for sure. We might need to do a DVD deep dive, then, at one point. Let's get to the cast, though, because this is an all-star cast, you know, led by Gary Oldman here as Dracula himself. Uh, what do you think of Gary Oldman's turn in this classic role? I don't think there's a... a a Gary Oldman performance that I don't like Mm. just about every time Gary Oldman shows up in something, even if I hate the movie, which I'm struggling to think of a Gary Oldman movie I hate, but like I'm always happy to see him because he never phones it in. He's always committed to every performance that I've ever seen. And I think he is far and away the best performer in this movie. Yeah, I I agree. Like, I don't know if it's my favorite performance in the movie, but I think he's doing the most. Like, he's doing, you know, he's got the most range in the film. It's funny because I was sort of joking on our episode, Dan, of House of Dracula, that like back in the day, you could sort of be, you could, if you played Dracula, like... You, you kind of made it like you were known and like you know I think even Frank Langella for instance and like Carradine and certainly Bella like oh they were Dracula like you know let's see what else they can do kind of thing I don't think Gary Oldman quite hit that but for me this is where I started paying closer attention to Gary Oldman I think I had only seen like Sid and Nancy and then I was like oh that's the same dude and then I saw around this time him he played Beethoven in Immortal Beloved and he was doing some other stuff around this time um I think he was in The Professional which is a which is a really intense performance of his and so like all around this time I started discovering him as an actor and this was just like wow like he he is not gonna pigeonhole himself so like you know keep paying attention to this dude and like Commissioner Gordon as Dracula. It's crazy. I, I agree with you that it's not a career-defining performance, but I think uh, to, to, to come up with one career-defining performance for a guy like Gary Oldman would be tough. Right, yeah. But you're, you're, you're right. I, I, I do think that of the famous Draculas, when you think of him, you don't necessarily think of Dracula first. I didn't even know, you know he was Dracula until I started doing the research for this podcast. Um, he actually signed on to this uh, his main reason was just to work with Coppola. Obviously, every actor probably wants to work with Coppola. He really loved a line when he read the script. I was trying to look it up. Uh, it's I've crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah. Yes, yes. Like that line transported him. And he was just like, all right, Coppola, <laughs> that line, I'm going to do this. He hired like a vocal coach to bring his vocal range down. It was like a singing coach. Um, because, oh. you know, that's, like, n- not his natural voice. But you guys are right. Like, he says this is his first big Hollywood film where he's, like, on sets and doing his thing, like, as the lead. So he was excited to do that, too. Um, his antics on the set probably wouldn't fly in 2022. Uh-oh. People have said Coppola wasn't the best on this set, either. Coppola t- said to him, like, basically, you know, be in character and scare all the actors, you know, 24-7, right? Like, make sure to get really visceral performances out of them by being an asshole, which, again, I'll say was very popular at the time for directors to do. In 2022, not as popular. Um, (laughs) And apparently he took it to the nth degree. Winona and him are friends today, but she said at the time she was pretty creeped out by the stuff he was doing. Look, this is a very sexual movie. There were, like, producers on set who predate our intimacy consultants that we have now. 
but they were exclusively for the women and like they weren't really coordinating with Gary Oldman and stuff like that. I, I don't want to criticize Gary Oldman because again that was very much of the time and Winona again today has said like she doesn't look back on this movie like oh why did they do it but she she can understand essentially I'm paraphrasing why if you looked back and you know her stories about it were a little tough it was a little bit of a nightmare shoot for her yeah, I could see that. He's an intense guy. No, no, yeah, no, no yeah. definitely. Yeah, it never goes well with um, method acting, you know, especially if you're trying to play Dracula. Like, it, that sounds like Jared Leto's Joker shit, you know, backstage, like sending people like dead fish in the mail or whatever he did. You know, I mean, because like Lon Chaney Jr. wasn't above being like sort of <laughs> a dick on set, you know, but like he was an alcoholic he was a dick like it was different it wasn't like be the wolf man all the time and scare the shit out of people kind of thing uh so it's a little weird i feel like you get a better performance if you're actually acting and you're not like reacting to your co-star you know all the time that's got to be exhausting you know what I'm saying? To to have to always be on like that as opposed to save that energy for when the camera's rolling. So that's all I always think of when I hear of like, you know, stay in character when we say cut. Yeah. It, there's a lot of good, I say good, there's a lot of interesting stories about that here. You know, we already mentioned Winona playing uh, Mina Harker. Like I said, so she has no ill will towards Coppola. She has no ill will today towards... Gary Oldman, it was exhausting for her, but she does point out Keanu as Coppola apparently wanted Keanu to also stay in character and wanted Keanu to, you know, sort of behave that way to, like, get a rise out of Winona. And Keanu apparently flat out refused. Like, he's like, I'm not staying in character. I'm just, you know, going to act. I'm not going to disrespect people like that. (laughs) So once again, Keanu showing how he's like the MVP of the world. Yeah, for real. It's going to make me feel real bad when I talk about how much I really hate his performance here. Well, I was just going to say, Dan, he's the, he's the MVP as a human being, not as an actor. He has even said, yeah. he mailed it in in this film. He said that mm. he was so overbooked at the time. He said that he just was doing movie after movie after movie, that he would yeah. show up to set and just not have any energy. So if you look at the reviews, they almost universally pan his performance. Yeah. And and this is why he's a great human being. He says he gets it and he understands exactly where it's come from. Coppola has even said in interviews yes. that he sort of regrets casting Keanu here. So everyone's on the same page, I think. Something that just recently surfaced like a day or two ago I saw online where uh, when asked about Keanu's accent in the film, Coppola said, you know, I tried to get him to relax a little more and not go all the way in on that, but he was intent on being very particular with the pronunciation and the way of, of speaking. And it very much, Coppola felt it limited him, but he wanted Keanu to do what Keanu felt comfortable doing. So he said to him, you know, you don't have to, do the accent, do your best. And Keanu was like, I really want to nail it. And then he also went on to say it, he was visibly exhausted. He was working over overtime at that point. And as much as he wanted Keanu to be there, you know, he just didn't get um, the Keanu that I guess he was expecting to show up. And they just made the best of the situation. And it's a, it seemed to be very cordial between the two of them. So. Wasn't the only other choice for Jonathan Harker Christian Slater? 
Yeah, and that's no. that's who no he wanted. Way. Coppola. No yeah, he way. wanted Christian Slater. No, no, no. Then who who's Van Helsing? Jack Nicholson? <laughs> Jack Nicholson as Van Helsing. <laughs> like no. <laughs> no. I was watching this movie and I was like, you have three at least two perfectly good Jonathan Harkers sitting around. I think Carrie Ells should have been Jonathan in this movie. He would have killed that role. I think it should have been him. They should have swapped roles, him and Keanu. Maybe. I mean, look, that's good, but he wanted Slater. Slater said no, and Slater has said, not AC Slater, Christian Slater. Yeah, he had to go do cuffs. He's like, sorry, man, I gotta go do cuffs. He regrets it, because he th- he apparently thinks he could have killed this this role. But after Christian Slater said no, Keanu's like, let me just get essentially a himbo. He's like, this is not a nothing role. Let me get some eye candy. And he cast Keanu that way. And Coppola has said that he regrets thinking that way because he would have thought alternatively about that role if he didn't. So everyone is cool with it. And everyone, including Keanu, realizes he was miscast. It is what it is. We can move on, I guess, right? (laughs) Did Billy Zane... (laughs) <laughs> that would have been crazy <laughs> I actually really like Carrie Ellis as, um, as Arthur because Arthur by the end of the movie gets all the cooler shit to do Jonathan has sort of faded into the into the group so six of one half a dozen I guess really but like I'd yeah, rather have the, the poor performance in the first half, in, in the first half. Well, see, that's where that's where the the original stage production and the original 1931 yeah. movie get it right. They sort of combined a lot of characters to really tighten up this like cast, and it's it's a very different Dracula. But I think it makes a lot of changes uh, in a lot of good ways. Yeah, that's 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 interesting, right? Because again, when you hear Coppola talk about his role, he said he felt. Like, it was almost a nothing role, so he didn't have a lot to offer to actors, which is like, okay, let me just cast Keanu. It's a little weird, but... I feel like uh, Keanu has a lot to do. Like, he, you know, like Dan said, like, he's almost the the whole first half of the movie is, like, a lot of Jonathan stuff. You know, it's like, he's the only one interacting with Dracula, giving us any point of view of what's happening in that castle. I also agree that the movie kind of loses track of him you know, along the way as well. And he, he does kind of like disappear into sort of the chorus a little bit. But I, I feel like he does have to do quite a bit of heavy lifting on his own as sort of the anchor for us into the world of Transylvania. I think he had to do more than Coppola thought he had to do, but less than other people, right? Like he thought he could get... Again, he, I yeah. like Keanu, so this is not a diss, but I think that he thought he could get away with just like casting someone that would draw people into the movie. Remember, he needs this to be a hit. He wants it to be a hit. Keanu Reeves is a hot name at the time, so he's just like, eh, just, just come along. It's not going to be that hard, you know? It is, uh, that's so tough when you're a director and you're like, yeah, he's an actor. He must know how to act. Like, he must be, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, he's probably going to be able to do it because he's an actor. And then he shows up and you're like, oh, right. He's like, he's an actor, you know? <laughs> Mike, remember, this is this is the person who a couple years before this said, Hey, Winona Ryder dropped out of my movie. My daughter can do it. She's never acted before, <laughs> but hey, let's do that. So like he definitely feels that way, even if you're not an actor. Like, hey, just read the lines. It's okay, just go. Like you, come here, you wanna be in a movie? I need you. Oh, by the way, you're the second lead. <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is another place where I feel like the the thirty one Dracula improves on the source material. Cause that that movie opens with Renfield. Renfield is the one at Castle Dracula, uh, having oh. like all of the all of the Jonathan Harker scenes, 
And by, when he comes back to uh, England, you know, then he ends up in, in the sanatorium. And Jonathan Harker is sort of a background character of that film. And like, I think no matter how you slice it, Jonathan Harker is just not a great character. Yeah, yeah. That, that might just be a problem with the book, but I understand that Coppola wanted to be faithful to the book. And so now we have to have Jonathan Harker play a bigger role, even though Renfield mm. is the more interesting character. Yeah, I, yeah. No, I don't understand where Coppola is coming from with that in terms of, Let's just make this sort of, uh, I'll use the, again the 2022 term, let's make this sort of a himbo because the character feels like it's written as like, if Winona is going to be a super, super interesting character, let's like almost gender swap it and make like just the hot dude, this character. who uh, Interesting. Who, yeah. The, you know what I mean? the damsel. Yeah. No, the damsel the da- in distress. Exactly, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Keanu becomes the damsel in distress. And, and I don't mind that either, really. But like if you are going for that, that's fine. Is is the movie going for that? I, I I would like to think so now, but watching it, I'm like, why isn't he kicking more ass as he's sneaking out of Dracula's castle? Like, show him kill a gypsy dude. Show him behead one of one of the daughters or brides of Dracula kind of said, you know? But instead, it's like he barely escapes. He's not heroic. You're right. He's kind of a dandy, you know? Like, no, he, he's, 100%. He's a ponce, you know? Coppola, but Coppola has said that he was kind of going for that. I just think he needed a non-tired actor, you know, someone yeah, who yeah. Like literally was physically tired. Yeah, oh, that would have been great. Especially Brad Pitt in yeah. like 92, where he's just sitting on a couch in True Romance right now. <laughs> it's true. You also need someone who can play a character that is the complete opposite of of uh, Gary Oldman's Dracula in terms of sexual energy. You know what I mean? Like, it, it has to be believable that Mina would would start to become less attracted to the man she loves, right? The, her fiance and then husband, and then leave that relationship to go be with a monster, right? You need to buy that. And so I think that's a big problem with Jonathan Harker as a character is that like, Like he doesn't do anything the way you would expect him to do it. That's why he doesn't kick ass on his way out of the castle. It's why he's not a real heroic character at all. And so, yeah, I think Jonathan Harker is just a problematic character from the get go. That makes sense. Um, So for the, for the rest of the cast who we haven't mentioned, uh, Richard E. Grant, who just nominated for, uh, you know, Academy Award. Loki. Jack's. Jack Seward, yeah, season Loki as well as what is it called? OG Loki, original Loki, classic Loki, yeah, cl- classic, classic, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I do want to shout out though Sadie Frost, who I really hadn't seen in much, playing that Lucy character. She's a big role in this, and she gets a lot of the great costumes and a lot of great lines and a lot of the great like vampire drama. What do you think of her performance and that character? What's that character's name? Uh, Lucy. Yeah. Oh, she's great. She's She's one of my favorite performers in this whole movie. Yeah, Lucy is, you know, the damned character in Dracula, right? And, like, all the versions. It's incredible, like, there's so much of that, like, early on, the promiscuity, like, the promiscuous stuff, but, like, oh, they're teasing and this, and she goes over to the guy, and she's like, oh, I've always heard of how big it was, let me see it, and she pulls out his, like, Bowie knife instead, you know? But it's, like, all this innuendo and all this stuff, and then all this innocence and then for her to be turned into such like a scary fucking vampire bride like it is shockingly scary 
every time I watch it, I'm sort of terrified by Lucy the vampire. And, and I'm always very, I feel very sorry for the character going through the transformation. All the suitors sort of like <laughs> coming together and being like, oh, what's wrong with her and everything. Like that's such an odd situation, having three suitors as well and stuff. But like, yeah, just such a, such a great character in the midst of all this. Yeah, she's so good at it too. You're right, Mike. Like, just again, the costumes, but like the way she's able to. Every time she was on screen, I was so focused on her that I was shocked that I wasn't too familiar with this actor. Um, Lucy really stuck out for me in this film. And I, I don't know, like, that's something that I guess I didn't expect. Is Lucy a character in other Dracula adaptations? Yeah, she's a character from the novel. Lucy kind of has to be the more promiscuous character, right? Because she's the one who, um, she's Dracula's first target, you know, his first victim when he comes ashore. And uh, her her sort of promiscuous attitude is is sort of necessary to facilitate that. And that gets him closer to Mina, right? That's what. Uh, that's the connection there. So yeah, Lucy is a is a is a Dracula staple. Yeah. So I I thought I was familiar with this character. Like to be honest with you, with the Universal film, obviously it was in the podcast, but with the Universal films, they've been more like background movies to me, right? Like I'll watch them, but I'm like having oh. a conversation. They're on. I'll, I haven't stabbed acad- me in the heart, Brian. I'm sorry. They I haven't, <laughs> acad- I haven't academically studied them and why would i need to i can listen to the monsters that made us and i get the work done for me you know that's our that's our new slogan now the monsters that made us we'll do the work for you <laughs> i do want to go back though and wa- believe it or not like and watch those after this one because i'm now i'm like super curious adaptation wise of like i guess this original story and how different people uh, uh depict it but um anyone else in the cast that really stood out to you that we haven't oh. brought up oh dude so my all-time favorite Van Helsing, Anthony fucking crazy pants Hopkins in this movie. I can't believe oh, you yeah. forgot uh, Van Helsing here, Anthony Hopkins. You don't like Hugh Jackman as Van Helsing? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't say I didn't like him. I'm just saying this one's my favorite. Gabriel's okay. Abraham's better. <laughs> Apparently, Liam Neeson was begging for this role. He so nope. wanted to be in this film. As Van Helsing. But once Anthony Hopkins got super hot after Silence of the Lambs, and he showed a slight bit of interest in this, the studio was like, Hopkins wants to do it, he's doing it. And then Coppola was like, great, he's awesome. I feel like this sort of role is how I always associate Anthony Hopkins. I mean, outside of the Silence of the Lambs, when, it, when he's not Hannibal Lecter, he's always like this sort of a character. And then I look back at his filmography, and this predates any other type of role that I like am thinking of, you know, like uh, the mask of Zorro wouldn't happen for another six years. And then um, uh, he's in the remake of the Wolfman with Benicio del Toro, you know, like the sort of older, wiser, um, almost a father figure type character, you know, this predates all of that. So this is kind of the beginning of of what I think of uh, as far as Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Basically what happened was um, he did science of the lambs and they said to him, Anything else you want to do that you hear is is coming on? Because you just kicked ass. And he's like, how about that Dracula film I heard about? And so this is like, when you were in 1990-whatever, what's Silence of the Lambs? 92? 91. 91? 91, okay. So this is 93, yeah. So 91, he, he wins that Oscar, and he can basically, you know, do no wrong. And they just want to lock him in things. Pretty much, the, he's got the Midas touch. Whatever he says, I want to be in, 
they're going to try to uh, get him in and no one's going to say no either because he's a great actor. So this yeah. is that movie after the movie, right? Like, oh, what is that person doing after they win that Oscar from essentially obscurity? This is yeah. it. And he, he kicks ass. He's the narrator as well. He's amazing in this. So, so this is kind of what I think of with Anthony when I think of Anthony Hopkins is like I'm expecting something unhinged. Okay, or else he's not being Anthony Hopkins, you know, like even Hannibal Lecter, like that is an uh, in that movie, that performance is over the top. It's like so he's like doing stuff so much bigger, even though he's like standing still. I feel like he's so much bigger of a presence than everybody else in that movie that he's like the one conceit of something that's like not part of that reality or something and so i always think of him as like he's gonna go off the rails or do something nuts and he and surprisingly rarely ever does but when he does like he knows how to swing for the fence and hit home runs like i find like this performance i never get tired of it like i want i want a series of this Van Helsing like I love the scar across his face you just like so much history with this guy like talk about sex like this guy is a sex ed doctor like he's talking about syphilis and venereal disease and and equating that with vampirism and all this kind of stuff you know and, and, you know like crazy crazy things that this uh, Van Helsing is bringing into the fold here and I'm just like so fascinated by his just energy about it all you know and his his kind of like complete nonchalance and acceptance of how horrible everything is is you know and when when he's explaining how lucy died is like yeah you know i stabbed it in the heart and i chopped off her head and then you know we burned a body and whatever and like passed the chicken past the salt like he's just so <laughs> so great in this movie i love it so many people have played van helsing throughout the years right like even in just in general and like vampire stuff right isn't there a van helsing in is it underworld or one of those movies right well like, there, there's like a sci-fi show where van helsing's like modern day like relative like his ancestor she's fighting vampires i think on sci-fi channel now you know i'm just trying to look up at articles of who played van helsing Lawrence olivier in 79 Ooh. Edward Vaughn Sloan is in uh, films you guys have covered it's a dragon yeah he, daughter. He, he's our van helsing Anthony Hopkins, as mentioned, Hugh Jackman, uh, Herbert Lom in the, the 1970 Dracula. Oh, okay. Mel Brooks, Dracula Dead and Loving It, your favorite. <laughs> there we go. Was I think he was also, he was uh, Van Helsing. I also am the Moyle, so, you know, I can do the steak and the snip and you're good to go. Christopher Plummer in Dracula 2000. All right, Christopher Plummer. Yeah, all right, you know. Um, it, it's it's such a cool role, and Anthony Hopkins knocks it out of the park. Anyone else we want to discuss here in the cast, or let's just talk our favorite scenes, if not? Two more. Um, so I just realized that Billy Campbell, the Rocketeer, plays Quincy Morris. Oh yep. my god! I had I wow! I did not even connect that he was the Rocketeer. That's awesome. I mean, I fucking love the Rocketeer, and I didn't catch him underneath that mustache. I just never it never clicked for me um just looking at the cast now i i, I had to like restrain myself that that's billy campbell oh, <laughs> i i love i love the suitors three like it's such a thor vibe with like the yeah. warriors three <laughs> yeah i mean how, where else do you see like a bunch of dudes all trying to win the heart of a single woman and then they all just become friends afterward you know like yeah let's become never a happens. team of vampire hunters like all right <laughs> It was amazing. so cool. I love that. Honestly, 
that team got me so hyped this time. One of, one of those vampire hunters is on heavy morphine, but we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Tom Waits, uh, shocked that, that the legendary Tom Waits is in this film. Well, sh- shouldn't be too shocked. Tom Waits is kind of a regular in a lot of Coppola movies. Like, he's one of his buddies. Does he want to be in my movie this time? Yeah. I spoke a little bit about how how much better Renfield is as a character in the uh, 1931 film. And just in general, I think. But I can't imagine... Like, say this movie were to do that, where Renfield is the character to introduce us to Dracula and all of that instead of Jonathan Harker. I can't imagine Tom Waits having the same kind of range that Dwight Fry did you know Tom Waits you see him he like kind of looks crazy already so I think he's used perfectly here in this capacity I'm a big Tom Waits fan uh, as, as a musician um, I do love when he shows up in movies post breakdown Renfield is like perfect Tom Waits role yeah I agree yeah. I think this is a really cool rendition of Renfield um <laughs> rendition no? Okay. Crickets. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I didn't even get that until you explained it. Sorry. Um, that's okay. It's not funny if you have to explain it. <laughs> and I agree with Dan. Like, I, I don't know that I could have, or that the movie would have time to kind of journey through his entire, you know, descent into madness. But uh, I get it from seeing him in the sanitarium you know like he's already too far gone and i understand perfectly like you know he's under dracula's curse or spell or whatever he's screaming about the master um it's phenomenal yeah he's good in in this kind of sort of limited role like again i was just shocked i shouldn't have been but i was shocked to see again tom waits here in terms of dracula's brides i was familiar with one of them monica bellucci monica bellucci yeah famous model as well i think she's in the matrix movies right She's in the Matrix movies. Was she in like a, one of the more uh, modern Bond films? I forgot what I was. think she was a modern. I think she was in one of the Bond. Yeah, Dan, I, I can't remember my Bond right now. I know she has one of my favorite moments in, in uh, Twin Peaks, The Return. She has like just a phenomenal moment in that. It is really funny. Monica Bellucci is in Spectre, if memory serves. There we go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is Spectre, yeah. Um, so, yeah, cool to see her. It's cool to see her here. I didn't know any of the other wives. I wasn't sure if you did, but she was kind of like the main wife. No, I didn't recognize them either. So the film, pre-its release, everyone in Hollywood were like, was like, this is going to be a disaster. Coppola is doing a Dracula film. Let's see this shit show. Like, if you look at articles of the time, they are saying like, ha ha, oh my god, this is going to be hilarious. The downfall of Coppola... What is this going to look like? And he shocks all the critics because this becomes a huge hit. Mike, let's, let's be honest. Let's talk about this. One of the films that gets this title, but it's called The Film That Saves American Zoetrope. <laughs> because like they're pretty much out of money at this point, and they make yep. huge money at this. And Coppola basically says, I told you so. I got it in on budget, on time, and it was a hit. So fuck you guys. Like which I think is so so I kind of think both parties are right in the end. Yeah. Like this movie is kind of a shit show. It's that you know what then though? It's like I, I feel that way too, but it's that perfect storm of kind of mainstream big studio shit, right? Like it 
barely yeah. kind of holds together because of how much trouble they're probably push and pull and, and power grabbing there was behind the scenes. But in the end, Coppola pulls it off and for it to be like a blockbuster, which is like, you know, a blockbuster horror film, which is ultimately like what this is and what they're going for. Like, it's a miracle kind of that that it's as successful as it was. Like, I love that about this movie. Look, it won three Academy Awards, not in like the, you know, best picture categories that Coppola is used to, but best costume design, best sound effects, editing and best makeup and rumor. These are the things he fought for. These are the things that, uh, you know, especially makeup and the costume design that that like was so important to him. And on a $40 million budget, which is pretty big for the time, right? It makes $215 million. So no matter what, he's laughing, you know, on his way to the bank here. Uh, 76% by the critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 79% by the audience, 3.6 on Letterboxd. Most people like this movie. So overall... Shocking to the initial expectations, but he succeeds. It's the Godfather. Is it Apocalypse Now? No, but it's not other Coppola disasters that I'm sure you and I, Mike, will talk about at certain points. <laughs> right? yeah, Dan, c- correct me if I'm wrong, but like there hasn't really been a Dracula film since one that covers him kind of like classically, like this does, like the like Bella did like you know way back when Todd Browning directed like it just seems like everything since this has been Underworld or you know Dracula to Twilight Twilight. yeah that kind of shit just joking the the closest we got was that BBC series it was like a mini series I forget how many episodes that was that from what I understand I haven't watched that yet uh, but from what I understand that was a pretty faithful adaptation as well that also tried some interesting stuff Kind of like this, but in, you know, not necessarily stylistically. Uh, I think more thematically. Okay. Most of the reason that this movie was such a hit, at least in my opinion, this is just my own summation. I could be wrong about this. Is the cast? I mean, you had a really hot cast of actors, like Anthony Hopkins. You've got Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder. A lot of these actors are like at the top of their career, right? Like they're at the top of that mountain. Everyone's going to go see this movie no matter what. You take away all of these actors and you just kind of leave everything else. I think what you have is a really ambitious, independent film that I don't know that audiences would really know what to make of it otherwise. You know what I mean? Like it does a lot of stuff uh, visually. I think in a lot of ways, it's a filmmaker's film considering all of the the uh practical effect and so like this is something that like filmmakers would go see and really love but the cast is what brings everybody else into the seats yeah yeah i i agree with that dan like i think like you remove the cast from this and then it is just uh an oddity or like a passion project or something like that and like thankfully he wanted the big cast and the draw and the attention and i you know Dracula deserves it you know as a property as as a story and you know talk about like man modern aesthetic and things like that the closest I could come to a look of a contemporary director today is like it feels almost like a Wes Anderson film at times you know with the way he uses models and scenery and reminds you it's a movie and things uh not not obviously tonally Okay, but just like sort of visually and and that kind of stuff. So very interesting. I already mentioned Terry Gilliam and his style, which I see a lot of here. But I would also say that this is like, 
maybe was an influence on Baz Luhrmann. I see some Baz mm. Luhrmann in here stylistically. Yeah. It's over the top in a way that I feel like Baz would do it, but he would probably lean more into digital effects than the practical effects. Look, I, I didn't go to film school. That's not my forte. I'm not going to tell you, you know, aspect <laughs> ratios or anything like that. But <laughs> if there was a museum and instead of paintings, it had movies for whatever reason, right? Like mm-hmm. definitely like Tim Burton stuff would be in this, this gallery Baz Luhrmann stuff would be in this gallery. And this of Coppola's properties would be in this same gallery. You're so right about that. Like, again, I don't know the name for it, but there's something here that's like, you know, I don't know if it's maybe modern Gothic is the name of it. You're so right about that, Dan. Like there is some. Well, I don't know that it's necessarily the Gothic part of it. You know, like I think it's just, it's, uh, I mean, in, in my notes, I wrote down the words high camp. High camp. Yeah, no, that's better. Yeah, I, again, I don't know the name, well, but you're yeah. so right. Like the way that things are heightened. This is a silly fucking shit show of a movie, <laughs> but it's done. It's done by a, a filmmaker who knows what the hell he's doing. Yeah. And so it never feels like it's off the rails and the film never got away from him. And so he, he gets away with it. And like the, the other filmmakers that we, we just talked about, when they're successful, it's for that same reason. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that, too. I would also like to throw around the term, you know, operatic, right? Like, this feels yeah. like I'm watching one of those uh, presentations, like it's a stage, you know, like they go all out with the smoke and the, and the sets and the rotating sets and stuff. Like, it feels very much in that vein as well and you know I, there's a lot of camp in opera there's a lot of drama there's a lot of violence um the only thing this movie's missing is really is uh some singing you know uh it's right. all it's all it kind of needed well that's a perfect metaphor actually because i'm thinking where else would anybody believe that what 20 something year old keanu reeves with like some spray gray hair is suddenly older keanu reeves you know like yeah yeah I, I laughed out loud when I saw that. Like, oh, his hair's gray to signify that he's old, but he looks the same. See, I, I, I always, I always used to take that before I knew what that was supposed to uh, imply. Was I just thought he, he was so? It was one of those instances you get so scared your hair turns oh. white. I didn't realize the Door life stress, had been yeah. sucked out of him. <laughs> yeah, you mentioning that Dan made me chuckle because it's like, oh fuck, that's what they were supposed to depict. Because I'm watching him like. Wait, why is his hair gray now? <laughs> I literally was saying that, like, oh well. <laughs> he just needs some glasses, and suddenly he's old man Reeves. <laughs> to be fair, look, we're, we are in 2022, many, many years away from this, and old man Reeves is still a fucking great looking guy. So, like, hell yeah. <laughs> we, he didn't even need the gray hair. I guess that's just what he looks like when he's old. So, so sorry, Mike. That's funny. No, that's great. You can't suck the life out of him. Yeah, you're right. No, it's impossible. (laughs) You know, talking about uh, just all this talk about cast and this and look and the style of this and everything, I'm starting to remember when one of my brothers came home from seeing this movie, I asked him, like, did you enjoy it? What did you think? Did you you like it? And this was his review about Dracula, about, like, Gary Oldman's depiction of Dracula. He goes... Eh, I didn't really go for that whole Axl Rose look. And that always kind of made me wonder, like, (laughs) what the fuck fuck was he talking about? But I get it, like, at the time, Guns N' Roses, Axl Rose, he was going around dressed up almost like young Dracula with the top hat and the circle glasses and the long hair. And it was right before he sort of dropped out of 
site and became you know a hermit i think this is like around the spaghetti incident or something but that always struck me as odd but it makes kind of perfect sense as uh, like someone who is kind of like just going to see this as a movie giving it's like honest review i couldn't have asked for anything more perfect mike a question and a comment first i think i've met every one of your brothers at least on a handshake right which brother was this? Uh, my very eldest brother, Nikki. Okay, that, that's who I thought. Is this the same one who gave The Godfather 3 review when he came home? Uh, no. Uh, uh, I think that was my, those, were my, those were my parents, I think. Oh, those were your Godfather. parents. Yeah, yeah. I want to do a podcast just on your memories of early 90s reviews of like your parents <laughs> or your brothers coming home and what they initially thought of films because like that's fascinating to me. So, so that's awesome. So, I, yeah, because I had no idea what he could have been referencing. Because I was like, "How the hell is Dracula like Axl Rose?" And then, like, you know, <laughs> I saw the movie, and then I kind of understood, like, years later, what he kind what he meant by that is like, it's not that he ran around singing or anything. It's just like the style. But that's the Victorian style. Like, I don't know. I never, in my mind, associated Axl Rose with that. I don't know why, and now I'm like, oh, fuck, that's what he was doing? <laughs> like, that makes so much sense. God, who are you? I know you. I have crossed oceans of time to find So I thought that was a pretty good place to pause for now. We'll conclude next week, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I feel like we're just, you know, getting, getting into the fun at this point. Yeah. Just a warning. We we recorded this in one sitting, and I drank the full bottle of wine. So next episode, <laughs> things get a little saucy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brian does it. It's a little out there, kind of like Anthony Hopkins Van Helsing. If you <laughs> no, but it was all fun. It's all fun. It makes for it makes for good podcast. I got to tell you, it was a great time. Well, happy early Halloween. I think by the time the next episode comes out, it will be closer to Halloween or even on Halloween. I have to check the calendar. But uh, nice. Mike, Mike, do you have a costume plan? Do you know what you're going to be? Um, you know, I do have a hot dog costume sitting in my <laughs> closet somewhere. So maybe I'll put that on and run around the neighborhood. You know, handing out little hot dogs, <laughs> free Ooh. hot dogs for people. I'll cook them up on a platter and just walk around the neighborhood and handing out hot dogs. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Well, unfortunately, they won't be cannolis, so I don't know. Just let's just stick with the cannoli line until we change it. Okay. Leave the guns. Take the cannolis. This is the end. Beautiful friend. This is the end. My only friend, the end of our elaborate plans, the end of everything that stands, the end, no safety or surprise, the end.